So, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Who were the campers last night, then? How did you sleep? Very good. Very good. <laughs> I'm full of admiration for you. Um, so, I'm trying to work out whether this is my um, third or fourth time at um, one of these men's events. Um, but, you know, I've loved every time that I've, that I've been here. I've... I've um, I've loved just being together with a group of guys, um, which is a, an unusual thing to be able to do, to have quality time together with, with people. Um, when we have had worship, um, there's an amazing kind of raw power, I think, when, when men kind of worship together, which we don't normally have in our kind of church situations. And I, I've loved um, you know, learning and being reminded of who it is that God has called us to be um, as, as men in terms of the, the journey and the adventure we're on, the, the relationships we are to have with our wives and our, and our children, and where we should get our identity from. I've just loved that, uh, that stuff. Um, so it's, just, it's, it's great to, to be here. But I, you know, I remember my very first time that I came to one of these men's events. Uh, it's, it's indelibly imprinted on my psyche. And some of you were probably here. It's that moment when I walked into the dormitory and I realized I was going to be sharing with six to eight men. Um, and it was the memory of putting double earplugs in, uh, memory of double pillars over my head. It was a memory of sinking deep into my duvet. At, but it didn't matter what I did. There was this deep rhythmic snoring that, that, like, that the whole air was vibrating. The whole building was vibrating. The whole structure of my bunk bed was vibrating. And it was that memory at four o'clock in the morning of just thinking, I cannot do this any longer. Grabbing my duvet, going down to my car, and it was cold, but it was quiet, it was sweet. But now this time, I've only shared with uh, just one other guy who happens to be my son-in-law. Where are you, Ian? Okay, well, family honor dictates that nothing is said about what happened last night. I'll say nothing if you say nothing, Ian. But um, I didn't sleep very well, but it's nothing to do with Ian. So what I'd like to do um, in this session is to take uh, just a very short phrase, four-word phrase from the Lord's Prayer. Um, but I want to say that I think the Lord's Prayer for me is something that I haven't even begun to plumb the depths of. I don't know what it's like for you, but I mean, normally back at our church, at Network Vineyard Church in Reading, we uh, often say the Lord's Prayer uh, as part of a dedication service. So, you know, we're standing with the, with the child and the family and the friends, and we're all as a church saying, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're here to support you, to stand with you as you're bringing your child up until they can know Jesus for themselves. Um, but even though I try and engage with these words, um, somehow it's, it's a piece of liturgy that just kind of flies over the top of my head. I don't, I don't really sort of engage with it. And yet, this is a hugely, hugely significant prayer. Because um, Jesus said to his disciples, this is how you should do it. And if Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, this is how you should do it, it, it pays to stop um, and, and, and think and reflect and see what's in there. And the other thing to say is that, um, as I think Rich was uh, hinting at last night, there is a, there's a structure of the Lord's Prayer. It sort of starts off by setting context. So we're saying, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So before we get to all the prayers for ourselves, for, for our needs, for our, our daily bread, for our forgiveness, for protection from, from evil, um, Jesus is saying, first of all, get the context right. Remember who God is before you get into all the other stuff about personal needs. Um, so I want to just take those four words, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Well, what on earth does that mean? What, what, what in heaven's name does hallowed be thy name mean? Uh, or holy be your name, uh, as it would be uh, described now. What on earth does holy be your name mean? Is it, is it a declaration? Are we saying, you know, your name is holy? Your name is holy. Are we declaring that? Or is it a, is it a petition? To, to God, that his name should be holy, should be, should be sanctified, should be set apart. Um, is it, is it, so is it a declaration or, or, or is it a, a um, petition to God? And the more I've, the more I've read around just um, uh, in, in preparation for today, it seems to me that it's the second of those two, that what we're doing when we're praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, it, it, we're saying, may your name be holy. Let your name be holy. So it's a petition to God that his name should be holy. Um, now, the, the Hebrew word for, for holy is um, kodesh, which means uh, apartness, set-apartness, um, separateness, or sacredness. So if I... If I just try to bring all that together for a minute in the kind of J JNIV version, the John Lee International version, it would mean something like, um, Father God, we pray that your name will be set apart and sacred, that we will honor your name, and then the world and all creation will honor your name as glorious and set apart. So, Father God, we pray that your name will be set apart and sacred. That's the holy that we'll do it first, and then the whole world of people and creation will honor your name. So far, so good. But, um, you know, the more we dig, the, the, the more questions that are, are raised that we've got to try and, and answer. You know, what, what is this name that we're asking God should be glorified um, and, and, and set apart? What, what is that name? Um, well, think about your own names for a minute. Um, so whether you're a Rich or a Matt or a Jeff or a John or who, whoever you are, um, think about what happens when you're in a supermarket and somebody calls your name. It's almost certainly not for you, but they call your name. What's your reaction to that? I know for me, I'm, I'm a bit like a Pavlov's dog. I'm right there. Somebody says, I hear John, and I'm, I'm right there. And, and the reason for that is that our name is so closely bound up with who we are that we react to it. And our, our name really embodies all that we are. So we, you know, after a growing lifetime, become really closely identified with our names. So you think like you're a Rich or a Matt or a Jeff or a John. Uh, so you react to it. And, and what our name does is to bring together all of our characteristics, all of our personality, all of our life experience. All of that is embodied in the name 
which is attached to it, which is why it's so important. And, and, and it's exactly the same with God. I mean, the one difference is that, because there is no other God, no other true God. But in principle, it's the same thing. So his name is the bringing together of all of his characteristics, all of his personality, all of his majesty, all of his amazingness. His name stands in for him. It represents him. So when we're saying, hallowed be thy name, holy be your name, we're saying that that name, all of his characteristics that make him up, is what we want to see being glorified. Um, So, ah, let it go. Um, What... um, Let's think about that name then. What is this name that, that represents God or stands in for him? So I wanted to check, how many of you have read John Eldridge's book, Beautiful Outlaw? Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think it was a fantastic book, and I, I can remember where I was when I was reading certain chapters in that book. I can remember right where I was and when it was, because it made such an impact on me. And, and really, the sort of central thrust of John Eldridge's book, that book, is about how uh, the church um, and the kind of world of art have done an amazingly good job of taking Jesus, this multifaceted, uh, multi jeweled, beautiful, amazing character that Jesus is, is, and they've taken that and turned it into a kind of monochrome version. They've sort of taken the life out of Jesus. And I want to explore that a bit more in a minute. So um, what I want to do with you is just for a minute to explore something of what Jesus' name is, of what God's name is, this name that we're asking should be be glorified and set apart. So who is he and and what is he? Well, um, we know that he has always existed and he always will exist. He is eternal from the beginning to end. And as we... uh, we read at the end of um, Revelation, uh, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amazing. Before time began, he was, and at the end of time, he will be. He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He threw the stars into space. He has created everything that we see. And in, um, in John, we read, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's all-powerful. He's created everything. And you can see him in the power of nature. You can see him in the raging storm. You can see him as, as the waves crash against the rocks in the power. But you can also experience him and see him in the gentle lapping of the waves on the seashore. You can feel him and experience him in the gentle, warm breeze on a summer day. And you can feel him in the golden light of autumn. He is absolutely everywhere. He pervades nature. And he is a God who has um, a sense of humor. Now, um, how do we know he has a sense of humor? Well, uh, we know that he created man in his image. 
and all that he created in us is in his image. So we can be sure that he has a sense of humor. I mean, you can look at you can look at the Bible and you can look at the way that he kind of played with his disciples and and um, yeah, it's true. You can't find anywhere in the Bible. It's saying, you know, and Jesus cracked an amazing joke and, the, and they all kind of fell apart, you know, weeping because they couldn't, couldn't get over it. You, there's, there's no direct reference to humor. But I think you can kind of look at the, the, the stories of the way that he interacts with his disciples and you can be, be pretty sure that he was actually having some fun with them. But also, as I said, we are made in his image and we have a sense of humor, therefore he has a sense of humor. But... If we're still in any doubt about whether he has a sense of humor, there are just two or three photographs that I would like to show you. Uh, and um, I don't know, see what you think. So if we have the first one, Matt. And I'm sorry that the picture's a little bit, little bit pixelated, but I, I, love, I love meerkats. They're probably my favorite animal. And this, here's the family shot. Children hugging each other there. And they are... Uh, they kind of, they, I find them ridiculously funny. Uh, have you ever seen them all looking at the sun? Do you know why they look at the sun? Anybody know why they look at the sun? Okay, they look at the sun because birds of prey use sun as their shield as they come down and attack animals. So that the birds of prey will try and get the sun behind them. And the animals can't see them, so they come down and they come down and get them. Meerkats have been given special eyes, so they can look into the sun, and they can see the birds of prey coming. So not only are they funny, and I think they show God has a sense of humour, but also there's a lot of God's cunning in there as well, because He specially designed them to be able to spot these birds of prey. So that's the first one. Se- second picture. Again, sorry, sorry for the graininess, but so you've got a frog on one side and a stick insect on the other. Now, the stick insect is almost certainly the prey of the frog. And they're actually touching each other, but they haven't a clue what's going on. And I, I, I just love that. I think that's really good. And let's go on to the, the third one. Now, that has to be conclusive evidence, I think. I, I, I know baboons have big red backsides, but I... Didn't know they could be as big as that. It looks like their airbags have gone off. And apparently, I, I, it's probably a bit too much detail, but when female baboons, when they're on heat, they're, uh, they're you know, it gets bigger, basically. So it's a signal to the world that they're ready. You probably didn't want to know that. But anyway, I think, I think anybody who designs something like that has got a sense of humor, don't you? Yeah, good. Right, thank you for that. Um, so, sense of humor, I've, I've, I've kind of done that one a bit. Um, so, when he came to earth as fully human, um, we know that he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. We know that he was hungry and thirsty and tired and, and tempted, and that before his, his crucifixion, he underwent amazing torment. So, he, he experienced the full range of emotions that we do. He's a God of extravagant generosity, and, and Rich was talking about the wedding in Cana last night briefly. Now, Jesus produced 600 liters of the very best wine at that wedding. 600 liters. You know, I think in every day as we look around, we see um, 
what an abundant God he is. We see it in, in nature. You know, I, I quite like melon. And there, are two, there are two types of melon, aren't there? There's honey, honey melon and there's watermelon. And the watermelon is the one with all the little pips in. And as I'm picking my way through the watermelon, which I do like, I'm thinking, do you know, God, it would probably only take two of these seeds to kind of keep the line going. But uh, it's, there are hundreds, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of pips, aren't there, in a, in, a, in a watermelon. I think it's just one of a million examples you could find of, of God's kind of extravagant abundance in, in nature. He's a God of um, extraordinary compassion. Uh, he's a God who hung out with the unattractive, with the prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with the social outcasts. He was the God who forgave the woman <coughs> caught in adultery. When everybody was ready to stone her, he was that God. And, and he was the God who allowed a prostitute to wash his feet with her hair, with her tears, and to, to dry his feet with her hair and forgave her, just breaking through all social conventions. So a God of amazing uh, compassion. He's a God of fiery passion, of fiery passion, compassion and passion. He was the guy who drove the money changers out of the temple um, with uh, a whip because they were abusing his father's house. I mean, he was a God who could show righteous anger. Um, he is a God of breathtaking boldness who upended social conventions, who honored the place of women, and who really did not mind uh, speaking the truth even when it cost him his life. And I just wanted to read you this, this, this bit from Matthew 23, the kind of woes to the Pharisees. I think it's just so, so powerful. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to read this one uh, kind of word for word. So he's... Um, He's talking to the religious leaders in, in, in Jerusalem. And he, and he says this. And this is a shortened form. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, you do your tithing, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, he says, you swallow a gnat. That's right, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, he says, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law. He's, he's on a roll here. 
You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves, Jesus says, that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, just a good measure, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You know, Jesus was absolutely and beautifully not politically correct. And he did not curry favor for the sake of it. He didn't curry cheap favor with the political leaders of his day. Um, I mean, we, we, we fuss about people transgressing politically uh, correct lines in today's society, but boy, he, he cut across every acceptable social convention and, and, and let, them, let them have it, really. Uh, but, you know, the amazing thing is that um, uh, everything he says, everything he does, is motivated by the purest of love. It was perfect. So he could say all those things in a way that we couldn't. Because he is perfect. But he had that boldness to say it as it was, which I think is just, just wonderful. Um, and he is a God who is um, cunning, amazingly cunning. Um, and, and we all know the, uh, the story of the denarius coin, but it's just kind of worth remembering that one too. That you know, the religious leaders of his day were constantly trying to catch him in his words, weren't they? They were, they were always just trying to catch him out. And um, he never allowed himself to be caught. And, and there's, there's this, this very well-known story about um, how a, a group of um, Pharisees came sidling up to Jesus, trying to catch him out yet again. And I'm sure Jesus was thinking, oh boy, here they come. I just, you know, they're just going to try it again. So they come up to him in a very slimy sort of way. And they say, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. And I think we've had a sense of that. Um, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And he, he says, why are you trying to trap me? So come on, bring me the coin. Let's have a look at it. So he has a look at the coin and says, who's Face is this, and whose inscription is it? So they say, it's Caesar's. So he says, okay, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God, God, what is God's. And it says, and they were amazed at him. Now, I don't know about you, but I just wish that I had the tiniest fraction of the ability to come up with an answer to a question that is just a complete blindsider. Now, the number of times I've looked back on um, conversations I've had with people and I thought, do you know what I should have done is say that. But it's never at the time, right? It's always after the event that I, that I do that. But I, I just love the way that he does this. He doesn't get embroiled in fruitless argument. He, and he, he just comes at it from some completely different angle. And I often, I often sort of say as I, I go along, along in life, you know, I wonder what Jesus would say in the situation because he certainly wouldn't come at it in the way that I do. He would come out in some other fundamentally different way. So he's amazingly cunning as well. He's a God of unsurpassable humility who, who gave up 
He gave up all that he was entitled to in heaven. He came down to us as a baby, as a a child who had to learn to eat and to speak and to tie his sandals and to grow into a boy and to a man and to learn a trade with his father. So amazing uh, humility. And he is a God who so loved the human beings that he had created that um, he was willing to die for our sins and to face an agonizing death on the, on the cross uh, together with two common criminals and gasping as he dies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A God of amazing um, humility and uh, compassion. And he is the God who faced the full enormity of hell that we could know relationship with him. Again, renewed relationship. So, you know, this is the, this is the glorious God whose name we're asking in the Lord's Prayer be glorified. Multifaceted, multi multi sort of jewels, multicolored God, all powerful, gentle, cunning, compassionate, extravagant. This is the mighty God that we worship. And John Piper, a Christian writer and teacher, says it's like exploring an iceberg. You know, the, the 10% of Jesus that we can see stretches up and up and up and up into the clouds such that we could never ex- fully explore it, let alone the 90% below the water that we can never see. So that is the mighty God that we, that we worship. Um, and I just wanted to take uh, two, three minutes just to see a quick film clip um, so we could just sort of ponder that for a minute before I go on to ask the question about what has the church done to Jesus So that, uh, that is the name of God that we are praying in the Lord's Prayer, should be holy. And I just brought out some of the dimensions of this amazing God that we follow. But what I wanted to ask now is, is what, has the church, what has the church done to this glorious Jesus? Um, and what has the world of art done to Jesus? Maybe not all of the church, all of the time. But some of the church, some of the time, or maybe all of us, some of the time. What have we, what have we done? Uh, and I just want to have a very quick look, first of all, at um, um, some, some art. Now, I was going to go quite hard on religious art when I started writing this talk. But, but actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought... Um, well, you know, almost certainly most of the people who've tried to depict God in some way have done so from a, from a good heart, so I shouldn't be too critical. But there is something for me about um, certain aspects of religious art that I think turn this amazing, majestic Jesus, and this amazing God we're talking about, into some kind of insipid, monochrome version of him. So I just want to show you a couple of pictures um, of, Mary, of the Marian child. Ilk. So we have a quick look at the first one. 
Now, um, I'm sorry, again, it's a little bit grainy, but this is a really, really weird photograph because he's actually almost like a little man, but he's very small. So he's not really a baby, is he? If you can sort of see that. He's not really a baby, but, uh, but uh, more like a, a little man. They've got his skin colouring about right, but there's a, there's a kind of hopelessly lost expression in Mary's eyes, I think. Um, and then the second, we just have a look at it, for me is even worse. So you've got this chubby little baby, um, white, definitely a Western baby, curly hair, probably blue eyes, and it's all just so wet, I find. Uh, and when you think about this mighty God that we're talking about, I know that part of it was his humility and him coming to earth, coming as a baby. But it wasn't under, even under those kind of circumstances. It was rough and it was gritty and it was dirty when he was the baby. So for me, although these guys have, have, have done their best to, to represent Jesus in some way, I, I just think that art has taken a huge amount out of the vitality and vibrancy and power of, of God. And um, especially when that starts to be revered, the st- revered in Orthodox-type churches, um, in place of God himself, then you have a really big problem. So that's it. That's it with art for a minute. And the next thing, I just want to think about what the church has done um, to Jesus as well. I mean, particularly the liberal church in the world. Um, and the liberal church argument runs something along these lines, that Jesus is love, um, so he would never want to stand in the way of anything which was loving. So any kind of relationship, in any kind of context, is okay, because if it ticks the love box, then as Jesus is love, he would, he would endorse it. Um, and so Jesus is turned into a, uh, a kind of a fuzzy, weak, insipid, uh, accepting all kind of person who is simply there to scratch the itching ears of people who want God to do what they want. But it is true. Uh, Jesus is love. Jesus is the most profound expression of love there could possibly be. He came gave himself up for us on death, for, for, to death on a cross, and, and, and gave up everything for us. So he is the personification of love. We know that. But he doesn't say every kind of lifestyle is okay. Even when he was with that woman caught in adultery, um, and he saw off all the accusers, and in the end it was just... Jesus and this woman, who was totally amazed that her accusers had gone, he said, go woman, he forgave her, but go woman and leave your life of sin. So he didn't say, it's okay, you go back to having affairs and all the rest of it. He forgave her, he loved her in such a deep way, but he said, go and leave your life of sin. And the church has done a lot of damage by trying to create God in its own image rather than represent him in the fullness and the glory and the power and the majesty that that he is.
So the question is, what does it all mean for us then? Sorry about all this rubbish scattered around the floor. Is that all right? A little bit of snowfall here. Um, what does it mean for us? How, how should we react to all of this? What, what change of heart should it produce in, in us? What kind of, what, what kind of actions should it, should it lead to? Um, well, Tim Keller, um, that uh, Rich referred to last night, has talked about three, three responses, really, to, um, to this question. He talks about the necessity of praise, and he talks about the primacy of praise, and he talks about the anatomy of praise. I just wanted to kind of run through those really quickly with you. So the necessity of praise. You know, if as followers of Jesus we're going to glorify God, then we have to praise him. We have to put him at the very center of our lives. He has to be the focus for our being, the focus for our actions. He has to be the number one. As Tim Keller says, you know, we, he asks the questions. And when we go into the, you know, the, the, the private place um, where there are no other distractions and we don't have to think about anything else specific, what do we think about? And Tim Keller says that we will, we will all praise someone or something. But the question is whether that someone or something is God or something else. So there's the necessity of praise then. So if, if God's name is to be holy, to be hallowed, then we have to praise him. He has to be our number one. And then he talks about the primacy of praise. Um, and I said earlier that, that Jesus sets out um, an order in the Lord's Prayer. So he sets the context of his majesty first before we get into praying for ourselves and for for other people. Um, and, do you know, this is where I'm going to make a, a number of confessions about my own shortcomings. Um, and the first thing I want to say is that um, I find it really difficult to pray silently. This is, this is a little aside, really. Um, so you're supposed to go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's unseen and he knows what's on your heart. But it, I, I find it really, really hard to pray Quietly. So whenever I pray, I, I pray out loud. And in my house, not so much now because the girls have all grown up and moved out, but, but even, even when they come back, it happens. I, I, I can hear them saying, Dad, what are you doing up there? What are you doing up there? And, and my youngest daughter, Kirsten's got really cute hearing. She says, Dad, I can hear every word you're saying. I can hear every word you say. And it's kind of embarrassing because I, um, I'm, I'm really kind of passionate when I pray and intense and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And I'm thinking, Kirsten, if you can really hear every word that I'm saying, that I am, I am embarrassed. So that's the first thing to say, that I, 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 um, I, I pray in quite a, quite a loud way. Um, the, the, next, the next thing to say is that uh, I do talk to God a lot every day. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right in there with, with uh, requests for his help in all sorts of situations, you know, situations I'm facing, prayers for other people, prayers for, for, for circumstances. But the, the 
the problem is that I don't spend anywhere near enough time listening to God. You know, so it, it's a bit like um, I'm with one of you guys and I really, really, really want to know what you think. So I meet up with you and um, I just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. You never have the opportunity to say anything to me at all. So it's a, I'm a bit like that with, with God, that I'm, I'm kind of right in there with, with all, my, all, my requ- all my requests and I, I need to spend much, much more time considering who he is and and I'm doing the context bit of the Lord's Prayer first uh, before I get on to my own needs and I need to be thanking him much more for the millions of answered prayers he has he's he's already answered and I'm just amazed at God that he uh, listens even to what seem like trivial prayers and, and still answers them he's patient but he wants more than that and I think um the other honest confession I I have is that I I find it much easier to be uh, doing things for God than, um, than to be for God. Now, he, um, you know, I feel that God has called me into to different things. I'm, I'm quite involved now, as, as some of you know, in, um, in stuff in, in sort of Ghana and Kenya and Albania and the Middle East. And these are all things that I, that I felt God has called me to do. Uh, and it's it's right. I mean, he calls us to to do as to well as to to, to be. He 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 calls us. Um, I mean, he says that faith without works is dead. So it's important that we are active in 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 God's kingdom. But I know that um, he also wants me to be. He wants me to uh, be shaped by him. He wants me to spend time with him, uh, loving him, listening to him, um, and just being. And actually, being is m- more important than anything else, just to be with God, to learn from him, to hear from him, before you then go out and do all these other things. And so then there's the, um, the anatomy of, of, of praise. And um, what um, Tim Keller is saying here is that when you think about God, it's a bit like a, a pendulum swing. You know, at one end of that pen- pendulum swing, there's an amazingly all-powerful God who has created everything, who is everywhere, who knows everything, who can make anything happen. And as we think about God being that almighty God, then it is amazing when we set it in contrast with the God who comes and loves us tenderly where we're at, accepts and walks with us with all our frailty. But also if we see it the other way around, if we think about that God who is with us in such a, a tender way, it throws into sharp relief the amazingness that the God who is doing this is that amazing God out there who has created all of this. So that's what, what Tim Keller calls the, the anatomy of praise. So we have to put, we have to praise, we have to put God first and we have to reflect on who this amazing God is, who's a God of so many different parts in, in our lives. So I just want to sort of round off really by saying, so we've looked at some of the aspects of the name of the God we are to glorify. We've looked at something of what the church has done 
to God. And I've, I've shared a little bit about my own shortcomings and where I know that I need to, to change. So what does it mean for all of us? Um, so the, f- the first thing, really, I think is to just stop and reflect on these four words. Hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. Sacred be your name. Set apart be your name. Just to stop and reflect on those words. Not just, not just now, today, but every day. Um, to glorify God, to have no priorities ahead of him. Not, not people, not career, not ambition, not even the things that we believe God has given us to do for him. The ministries even are not to be before our love of him and the relationship we have with him. So I think that's the first thing that we have to do. And I think we have to look at our own hearts and just encourage us all to do that and say, you know, what, what if anything is there that stands above God in that prioritization? So we think about his name being holy. What else have we put in there? What needs to be removed from our hearts? What needs to change? So how do we love God? Well, we see in uh, 1 John 5, this is love for God to obey his commands. So if we have a look at the whole of Scripture, we've got the handbook for doing that. So to love God is to obey his commands. And, you know, if we make a practice of uh, hallowing God's name every day, um, then we get into the right relationship with God. We get into a position where we can be shaped and molded, loved by him, and we can love him and we can hear his voice. And everything else will fall into place. All those prayers where I rush in and ask the questions as my immediate instinct, I know I have to put into perspective. And if I, I need to spend more time with God just considering who he is and loving him and walking with him, listening to him, being shaped by him. And that's what he wants us all to do. Um, Seek you first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you as well. It's just, so, it's just another way of putting it. That's what God's saying to us. Seek the things of God, and all those things that trouble your hearts, all the needs you have, he will meet. So we're nearly there. Um, so finally, this isn't just a personal thing. This isn't just you and God, me and God, important though that is. The Lord's Prayer calls for his name to be glorified, us first, and then the rest of the world. So how will the world come to glorify God's name? It will come to glorify God's name when it can see the beauty of God, when it can see the truth of God. When we strip off all those layers of tradition and in hypocrisy and man-made things that we have overlaid the truth of God. When we strip those things off, then um, the world can begin to see Jesus and God for who he is. And, you know, I, I read out the woes earlier on. Woe to you this, woe to you that, as he was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. In some ways, we are the religious leaders of our day. And if we like to think that those stupid Pharisees got it all wrong, well, maybe they did, but we do as well. So we just need to remember 
that. Um, so look at our lives. Look at our lives. Think about how we come across in, in our, our personal witness, in, our, in, in the things that we say, the things that we do, the way we live out our personal lives, the way that we live out our corporate lives as, as, as Christians. That We want to pray to God that we will be able to present ourselves to the world in a way that presents the attractiveness of this God that we want to follow. And that is our call to mission, finally. Um, the great commission given by the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now some people may say that their Christian faith is a private thing. It's a personal thing. You hear it sometimes. Uh, not possible, my friends. It cannot be a private Christian faith. We are called to shine as lights to the world. We are called to just open the door for people to, to, to Jesus. So hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. Uh, may your name be glorified and set apart, God. That is the prayer that we, that we pray. And it truly is a key that unlocks the door for us. And it is the key that unlocks the door for other people as well. So thank you, guys. And I'd just like to ask Tom to come up and join me. Uh, Tom, you know, is going to tell uh, a great little bit of his testimony, which I think just shows that at a point in time, he understood the importance of the primacy of praise. Tom, thanks. Hello. Can you hear me? No? Well, yeah. Now? Okay. Um, yeah, no, I just, I was asked to share a, a little bit about, I guess, uh, a point in my life where uh, hallowed be thy name sort of came in HD in, in my face, really. It was, uh, it was a little over, uh, a little over two years. Um, so where I was in my Christian walk, I was seemingly like everything was okay, which is always a dangerous thing when you think you're <laughs> doing quite well. Um, I was squatting with my in-laws, outlaws, um, for a while, uh, just while I was saving to buy a house. So, you know, I'd walk in the house that obviously my uh, um, in-laws live with. You know, my mother-in-law thought I was great, which is helpful. Uh, <laughs> you know, newly married, everything's fine, you know, work's fine. And, um, you know, because I was sort of avoiding being in the house a little bit. I was doing loads of exercise, loads of like 50-mile bike rides. I was feeling, you know, just really great, really great. I think that was my reality. Um, and then I sort of had a snotty cold that just wouldn't really go away. And then it developed to a cough, and I just kept coughing. Um, and then one day I just couldn't stop coughing, and my throat shut. And I was doing my um, sort of salmon out of water impression on the bathroom floor um, as I just, you know, struggling to breathe, struggling to get breath, you know, and, um, and you know, I'd been turned away by the doctors, so they didn't think I needed antibiotics. Um, and the paramedics, you know, calmed me down, got me breathing again, and I walked in and had antibiotics. Now, you know, fine, you know, okay, a bit scary, but, you know, I'm sure we've had moments where we thought, oh, it's a bit, a bit lucky. But anyway put me on antibiotics and then um, where sort of the fun really began was like the following day. Um, now Brentwood as a place has a, 
has a reputation for people upgrading their faces and bodies generally. Um, and I was like, there is something up with my face. Like, and I was like, and everyone's like, no, I'm like, can't, can't see it. I was like, fine. Carry on a little bit longer. Then I start, then I had like bright red armbands. And so I rang up and said, you know, something's not right. I'm obviously reacting to this antibiotics. Fine. You know, change my antibiotics. Fine. Um, uh, had a family event and started to shiver and it got worse. Then on the Monday, I just couldn't get out of bed. I sort of staggered downstairs um, and my father-in-law was working from home, looked at me and said, I think you need to go to the doctor. I'm going to drive you to the doctor. And I was like, you know, I was feeling rough, but I just thought it was part of the course. And then when I was in the doctor's surgery, doctor looked at me and uh, she said, we're calling the ambulance. So they called the ambulance and at that time I had about a 43 degree temperature. So I was really starting to cook. Um, so and I remember, you know, sort of getting taken to the hospital, and then I remember being in high dependency, staring at her. On the opposite side of the room was a bed where we'd basically said goodbye to my wife's grandma. And, I, you know, <laughs> life suddenly was becoming a little bit jaded, a bit scary. And But, you know, a nurse reassured me by saying, you know, we're just going to put adrenaline in here just in case, you know, you throw shirts. And I was like, great, thanks for that, guys. Um, and, you know, so then, you know, temperature, you know, soared and, you know, about four o'clock it stabilised. I came back down um, and, and they put me in a side room and I was, and what I guess I was really here to share was, was the moment at which I came into this side room and uh, everything was inflated, like everything. Um, and you know, I, I <laughs> feel like I, the baboons. You know, where I was is I was in a room and I was on my own, and I'd had everything stripped away in probably about twelve hours. You know, I wasn't the engineer. I was. I wasn't the you know husband. You know, I wasn't this you know dashing, you know look of fitness. You know, I was a, you know I was a mess. You know, I was I, was, I just looked like Jabba the Hutt, and and I was just sat in my bed thinking like. <laughs> This is the worst like I've ever felt. I I just felt just like broken. And I always remember reading the Bible and and hearing when Paul praises the Lord when he's probably sat in his own feces in prison for doing the Lord's work and he praises the Lord. And I was like, well, okay, I'll I'll try. You know, I'll I'll try and praise your name. I'll try because your name should be praised. I'm just going to do it, you know, I'm just going to, so I picked a song from my wedding and I just started singing it and the tears just flowed and they continued to flow and I was like, okay, probably just emotional, let's try another one. So I tried another one and I couldn't stop, just tears and just the Lord was with me and he was there and, you know, he was real and he was just, he was just, he was with me and it was so obvious and then I kept going, and then I thought after like half an hour, I was like, right, this is ridiculous. I've got snot and tears everywhere. The nurse will come in and, you know, check me again. I need to stop. This needs to stop now. Like, we're do like I'm done with emotion now, you know. I said, let's find a song that I know I really dislike. So I said, right, I'm afraid, Lord, you're going to hear Shine, Jesus, Shine. Because, because that must be on, like, first worship guitar song book ever, and it's been played to death as I've grown up, you know, in and around church. It's horrendous. And and I started to sing it, thinking, this is this is it. This is the cork on the tears. We're done. And I just couldn't stop 
I just couldn't, it just kept going, it just kept going. I just couldn't stop crying. You know, I just kept crying. And the Lord was with me, and hallowed was his name, and he loved me. And when we say, it's so, sometimes so tinny when we say, like, God loves us, yeah, he loves us for who we are. You know, it was easy for me to say that 24 hours previously, 36 hours previously, but as I was sat there on my own, looking like a mess, feeling like a mess, to realize that God did love me, and he died for me when I'm in my worst, in that state that I was in, you know, and we say, you know, hallowed be your name, you know, when we acknowledge that he is God, he is in control, um, then that's where uh, it really, yeah, and, and the song now, it's quite funny, I, I quite like it, um, <laughs> and it was bad enough before I sang along, and now it's going to be much worse because I do sing along, um, but I just, uh, yeah, I just feel like that was just such an incredible moment where, you know, his name is holy, and it should be acknowledged, and yeah, that was just, uh, I guess, like a moment I just really wanted to, to, to share. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so I'll just pass. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. That's, that's great. Fantastic. Um, okay, so, so now um, uh, I just want to pray with you guys, and then um, we have our first time of silence. Um, half an hour? Is that right? So just sort of go off into the grounds wherever you want to. Absolutely no talking to each other. It's, it kind of breaks all our normal social rules, but it's, it's vital. And then I think you're going to sound the klaxon at... Yeah, at the uh, after half an hour, and then it's coffee time for 15 minutes, and then back in here for for the next session. So, um, in your, is everybody got one of these books with them? Um, you'll you'll find at the back that there are um, some questions um, that are suggested for each of the sessions, and and this was session two, obviously. So, if you could have a look in your, well, wherever you find yourself, if you could just have a look at these questions. Uh, and maybe just use these as a bit of a framework for talking to God now and seeking God um, in, in this time. So would you just like to stand with me and we'll, we'll pray just before we go out and do that? Father God, we want to say we glorify you. We want to see your name hallowed. We want to see your name holy. We want to see your name glorified and set apart. Lord, we want to do that in our own lives. And we want to be witnesses for you so that we can introduce other people to that same relationship, God. And I pray, Father, as we, as, as we just seek you now over the next 30 minutes, that you will speak to us about where are you in our prayer lives? Where do, we, where do we go by default when we have quiet times and don't have to think about anything else? Are you our default position? And if that isn't the case, Lord, help us just to identify what are those things that stand in the way, those things that you want to move out the way so that we can be with you, grow with you, be loved by you, and love you in the way that you want. I think we'll just pinpoint those things for us now. In Jesus' name, amen.